Greetings, dear listeners. Shadi, Sam, and Christine headed to Aspen this week and recorded a live episode with a studio audience. The broad topic is this feeling of decline we collectively can't seem to shake. The crowd got involved and the conversation was terrific. You're in for a treat. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, other subscriber-only benefits, such as essays and bonus episodes. And don't forget to give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. live taping of Wisdom of Crowds. Um, great to have you all. Um, so I'll say a little bit about Wisdom of Crowds and what we're about for those of you who are new to the podcast. Um, so Wisdom of Crowds is a newsletter, podcast, and debate platform, but we have a particular ethos. We're not really interested in persuading you that we're right or persuading you that you're wrong. We're, we're more interested in understanding why we believe the things that we believe. And sometimes the way that we describe this is that we're interested in first principles. So if you take like any kind of superficial political debate, you can have the kind of standard partisan back and forth where no one actually gets anything out of it. What we like to do is to dial down and figure out like if someone has a quote unquote bad idea, what are the starting premises that led them to have that idea and to sort of suspend judgment a little bit and to open ourselves up to the possibility of, that doesn't mean we have to like other people, it just means that we have to make an effort to understand. So our, our actual motto is um, <laughs> agreement is nice, disagreement is better. And I should also say that we don't believe in consensus. The idea that we can all come to a conclusion that we all share and we leave and we say, oh, we all have common ground. We're not huge fans of that because we do have fundamental differences in this country in this moment. That should be clear enough. There are things that we have profound disagreements over. And sometimes there may not necessarily be a common ground for us to find. So we have a really cool topic. Um, is American decline inevitable? And what we'll do, we'll just kind of have um, a kind of like living room conversation. Like we're, we're kind of like a freewheeling podcast. The three of us are actually close friends. So sometimes we just hang out and have dinner and talk about philosophical issues as one does. Um, in fact, we did that last night over dinner at a very nice restaurant called Dumani. I don't know if some of you have been there. Yeah, okay. So, um, and just to kind of make it more informal, what we want to do is not just have a Q&A session at the very end for 10 minutes. If any of you, like, want to jump in while you, you've heard something that we've said and you want to ask for clarification or maybe push back a little bit, that's kind of what we want to encourage. So we got, like, a smaller intimate group, so I think that we can do that. So there will be mics that are passed, so just raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get a mic. And I really mean that. We, we do want to encourage you um, to do that. Uh, so just on practically, so raise your hand. Mike will come to you. Then we'll get you into the conversation as soon as we can in a kind of fluid way. Yeah. And I'll also just um, introduce um, the two people next to me. Uh, Christine Emba is a columnist at the Washington Post. And she's the author of an amazing book, which I would highly recommend, called Rethinking Sex. A provocation. So that, that does sound spicy. And I have read it, and it definitely is spicy. Um, and then uh, Samuel Kimbriel is the director of the Philosophy and Society Initiative at Aspen. And you may have seen him yesterday with Arthur Brooks talking about happiness, and we might touch on some of those themes uh, today. Um, and Sam is the author also of a great book called Friendship as Sacred Knowing, Overcoming Isolation, which is also relevant to what we're talking about when we think about the future of our society. So with that, I'll just maybe offer up a, a couple of framing points and provocations to both of you and just see what, 
see how you guys respond. And the great thing about like our friendship is even though we know each other pretty well, I don't actually ever have a good sense of what they're going to say before they say it. There's always a sense of like, wait, like what is their position really on this? How are they going to express it? And so I guess I'll, we'll find out. Um, so the reason that we wanted to pick this topic is because um, it's clear that something is wrong. I think a lot of us feel that. That's come up in a lot of the panel conversations over the past week. And, um, and so the question is, well, are things as bad as they seem? We're, and there is a whole kind of doomerist, doomerism movement. The doomers, they tend to be Gen Z, the young folk who are very catastrophic when they think about the future of our country. There's this whole new thing that I was not familiar with until fairly recently. You can now be childless by climate. In other words, you decide not to have children because you're afraid of climate catastrophe, you know, decades from now and so forth. And there's a poll from 2021. It's remarkable that 40% uh, of young people, so ages 16 to 25, say that they are hesitant to have children because of climate change. That's a massive number. And it might very well increase in the coming years as the climate conversation gets more intense. And that's one data point I wanted to leave. Also another one, again, it's kind of a crazy statistic, so I had to double check right now to make sure I wasn't imagining it. But according to um, a 2020, 2022 Gallup poll, um, only 24% only of Democrats say that they are extremely proud to be American. And then the number for Republicans, 67% of Republicans say they are extremely proud to be American. So we're having a real partisan divide on how you feel about the American idea. And this has major implications. I mean, I don't want to presume what party people are part of, but if some of us are Democrats and this is the kind of sentiment, then pe clearly people are pretty depressed about the future of America. And that affects how we raise kids, you know, family, fertility rates, all of this kind of comes together when we think about pride and how we feel about our country. So I'll just, you guys know, like I'm more optimistic about the future, but we can get into why. But I'm curious, based on anything I've said, just to get started, how worrying are some of these numbers to you? And is that the way we should think about decline? Because there is, there is a material decline, and we can talk about GDP rates and economic growth, but there's also spiritual decline, emotional decline, where a whole society loses faith in, in itself even if the GDP numbers are amazing. So there's these two levels that I think are really important here. Christine, do you want to tell us? Yeah, for sure. So I'm an opinion columnist at the Washington Post, and my focus, my beat is ideas and society, which is actually a little bit of everything. But I tend to focus on the social factors, and those are the ones that I've found actually really worrying in recent moments. So, I mean, just to pull some stats, too, life expectancy, like longevity from birth, has declined for a basically unprecedented second year in a row in the United States. This is something that just doesn't happen in countries that are improving. And at first, you know, we thought that this decline was due to just the COVID-19 pandemic, and other countries were experiencing slight declines too. But those countries rebounded. America's life expectancy is still falling. And then you can think of, you know, the beginning of life, not just the end. Um, we have the highest maternal mortality rates of any high-income country, um, the highest infant mortality rates of any high-income country. America is kind of the most dangerous place to give birth among all of the high-income countries. That, again, that doesn't speak well to our future growth, to, you know, what we're saying about how much we care about our citizens. Um, Last year, my colleague David Ignatius, um, also a Washington Post columnist, incredible, so well-sourced in international relations, um, he got his hands on a report from the Pentagon's in-house think tank, which is like kind of creepily called the Office of Net Assessment. Like, mm -hmm. assessment of what? Well, they're not going to tell you. <laughs> um, but they commissioned this report on national competitiveness. And they, the Pentagon, 
um, reported that the U.S. was falling behind on seven key attributes. Um, so it was national ambition and will, a unified national identity, shared opportunity across classes and race, an effective state and effective institutions, competitive diversity and pluralism, and having a learning and adaptive society. And so again, these are all things that could contribute to GDP growth or could contribute to American hegemony um, in terms of international relations, uh, in terms of military strength. But yeah, this does speak to some sort of deeper internal decline. When we see you know, mothers dying in childbirth, it shows that we maybe are not caring for our people. Um, when we see young people, this is also an area of my research, rethinking sex, um, deciding not to get married, not to form families. We're in the midst of what many people are calling both a sex recession and a fertility crisis. It's a sign that people are not optimistic about the future. They don't feel that they are going to be part of building it. They don't want to bring new children into it. And then I know you love to poke fun at Gen Z. I, I love Gen Z. I have a 23-year-old sister who insults me constantly, <laughs> and I love that for me. Someone needs to keep me humble. But when I talk to her and her friends, they, they want to be optimistic about America. This is the place where they were born, where they live, but they feel like they don't have the power to change it themselves. They think they want to you know, help fight climate change. They want to save mothers and babies. They want America to be more diverse. But then they look at our institutions. They look at the Supreme Court, which they call the biggest gerontocracy of all time, basically. Yeah. They look at our Congress and they think, my vote doesn't matter. There's no way for me to affect change in this country. I want to love it, but it's not really mine anymore. And that's the thing that I find alarming. And I'm not sure yet how we turn that around. Let me share a little aside about Gen Z before Sam uh, jumps in. And uh, this might seem a little bit random. I think there's a point here. But I was at, <laughs> I was at a party a couple of weeks ago and it's sort of like a friendly acquaintance. We were talking, I don't really know much about her, but she was talking about this new relationship she was in. She's 30 years old, so a millennial, and she started dating a 23-year-old guy who is Gen Z, not super common, but I was intrigued. And she, like, you know, how does that work between you two? And what, what, is, what is a 23-year-old man like these days? I don't really <laughs> hang out with them all that much at that age. So, she said something really interesting that they get into some tension and fights because this 23-year-old is a fan of Andrew Tate. And I don't know if people have heard of Andrew Tate, but apparently he's quite popular among the youth. Um, he's like an influencer, but he's under charges for sex trafficking. And um, he's kind of like one of the major manfluencers. Is that the, you coined that yeah. term? I um, <laughs> masculinity influencers. Mas yeah. Very big on the internet. This idea days. of like a very tough masculinity and women should be subservient, so on and so forth. She's very much not like that, this friendly acquaintance of mine. So I guess they're dealing with that. But, um, <laughs> um, but uh, and more on the more mainstream level, of course, we have people like Jordan Peterson who are promoting this kind of idea of a new manhood and, and so on and so forth. Just to say that I don't totally understand Gen Z because they, they're on TikTok a lot, whatever, anyway. <laughs> Sam, um, feel free. Well, no, I mean, actually, before I do, I'm interested in your counter case. So Christine has laid out a pretty strong declinist narrative, and you tend not to take that view. How, like, how does that work for you? Yeah, sure, okay. Well, if we look at the material factors, um, so GDP, uh, GDP, overall GDP, and it's interesting that a lot of the estimates were that China would overtake us in this decade. And just in the past couple of years, forecasting firms have pushed back their assessments. And there's actually one major firm now that says that China will never take overtake the US in overall GDP, while some of the others say it's going to happen later in the 2030s. Um, yep. So that, that to me is interesting that we've had a lot of hype around the rise of China, but China is actually struggling in really important ways. 
um, self-sabotaging its economy during the zero COVID experiment, but also when you have an authoritarian leader who just kind of governs according to his own whims and it's very personalistic and almost neo-totalitarian, that creates a lot of uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen five years from now in China. What happens when the president passes, as he will probably at some point in the future? Like we, we forget sometimes authoritarian leaders can sometimes seem like they're immortal. So we start to forget that at one point they probably will die. So for me, a, a big part of the case is that there's something powerful and resilient about democracies. Democracies enjoy the consent of the governed. And that gives us a fundamental advantage with countries like China and Russia. But uh, Lupe, do you want to jump in? Yeah. First, uh, I love wisdom of crowds. I love that it's even called wisdom of crowds. It's something that <laughs> makes me want to giggle in the irony of it. Um, I, I wanted to know of those of us here, like who, who thinks that things are declining and who thinks things are getting better? Yeah. Oh, hand poll. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's start with those who think we are in decline. Show of hands. Okay, so it seems close to a majority. Yeah, definitely a majority. Definitely a majority. Yeah. Okay, and then those who think that America is doing whatever the opposite of decline is. Rising. <laughs> Rising or it, its best days are ahead. Okay, we have a couple on that. Oh, we have someone wavering yeah. in the back. Can you, get, can you get a mic here? Good that we have some optimists. So my name is Brian. I work for Foundation Charlotte. We're looking at, we, I've spent the last uh, six months working on what our new strategies will be. We're looking at issues of belonging, relationships, awe and wonder is probably, but I've also been spending some time in the Nordic country because if I, I thought if I need to look at happiness, you need to go to the places that rank highest. Um, and so I guess my, my comment or question would be, we're, we're supposing that the U.S. is in decline, uniquely, maybe. But when I just came from Finland, Sweden, Denmark, all of them have done recent polling of young adults where they feel a lack of connection. They feel uncertainty about the future. They feel a lack of trust in their governments. So I almost, I'm almost questioning whether there is a universal decline or universal feeling of, of unsettledness, of unhappiness, of no matter how much money you make, no matter what race you are, no matter whatever, wherever you live, there's almost a universal feeling that something isn't right with our country. With, with, and, I mean, literally the people in Helsinki were like, oh, let's do a partnership because we're experiencing the same things with our young people here. So just, I, I yeah, think right. one, okay. one question okay. would be, yeah. is it just the U.S. Yeah. or is it democracies? Yeah. It, it, so it, it seems to be more accentuated than the U.S., but it is part of a universal trend. Um, if you look at some of the American numbers, they do seem to be worse. So, for example, the recent CDC report that one out of every three teenage American girls has seriously <clears throat> contemplated suicide. Again, one of these stats, it's so hard to actually like absorb and process, but um, that they do seem to be the numbers. I would maybe just add, like going back to like why, why we might want to push back against the declinist narrative, or at least why I do. I think part of it has to do with the fact that I'm a child of immigrants. I think that I come at this with a bias. Uh, my parents were born and raised in an authoritarian regime and one that has been quite brutal at different, at different points, especially during their childhood um, in the 50s and 60s under the Nasser regime in Egypt. Nasser was you know, pretty intense in his repression. And, I, and so much so that I remember like, spending time with my grandmother in Egypt, and whenever I would bring up politics, she would get very nervous, and she would say, there was a term in the Nasser era, um, they, um, behind the sun, that's where they would take you if they disappeared you or put you in a prison and didn't tell your family members. And when you have that idea, it's a very evocative image of someone being behind the sun. Just think about that for a moment. So I, I look at that background, and also I've lived under three authoritarian regimes myself as an American citizen, so don't, you know, don't have to be too worried on my behalf. But you, know, you still... <laughs> yeah. But you still do kind of get a sense of how other people live in these very constrained environments. So everything is relative. We, the only way we can assess our own country is relative, relative to other countries 
or relative to what we want America to be or relative to what America was? I mean, yeah, so this is where I want to jump in, right? So like, I think that the question needs a little bit of clarification, right? Because it's like decline of what? Like, what is it that we're actually talking about here? And so, um, I, you know, I have spent a lot of time having to read books and that means having this kind of like way of wasting your life reading history and trying to understand like just how different and how diverse human society has been. And it has been very different. I mean, I think the first thing you have to do when you start um, studying history is grasping in some kind of way um, the radical otherness of like what the, the way that like the frame of life can change. And um, one of like the books that we talk about on the podcast a lot is um, this book by um, Svetlana Alexievich, Secondhand Time, which is essentially a kind of investigative journalism that has like risen to the level of literature. I mean, she won the Nobel Prize in Literature for it. And what she does is she goes around and just talks to people about their experience of the fall of the Iron Curtain from her first accounts are from 1989 up until 2012. And you can feel the sense of like a world shifting, like coming in, like everything, like to do it the other way. Like um, for us, what is it to be an adult, to have work? How, where does the place of family? What is the purpose of life? How does this work? And you can watch as the answer to all of those questions as communism sweeps out and meritocracy and capitalism sweep in. It's incredibly disconcerting and strange. And the weird thing about doing political philosophy is that you realize, like, the, it's not that the, um, the data is hard and trying to figure out the answer is hard. It's that the question is hard. Like, what the hell are we doing with life? That's the, that's the really difficult one. And so, um, so I think I'd say a couple things about the current situation. The first is, like, to affirm what Christine was saying. I am pretty sure that a constant is that in order to have a good society, you need hope. So... The possibility of saying, okay, we're going to do stuff, and like life is worth living, there is something that I'm willing to risk for. That is all built around a matrix of saying, okay, if I take this risk, there is some horizon for me. And I think that's the, when I'm looking at the data on loneliness, for example, I think that's the really pressing question, is do people actually have hope that if they take this risk, if they're willing to, like, for example, to take the stuff about romantic relationships and sex, like, that's an incredibly vulnerable thing to do in any case, like, in any civilization. Um, the question is, are you willing to do it in a, in a broader si situation in which you feel scared and precarious and threatened? And then I think to layer that on with a sense that there isn't a horizon because of climate, that is a really intense thing. We did um, a, set, a really interesting conversation in D.C. at one point um, with this... Um, this uh, group that is specifically working on mental health and climate, and they have what they call a Gen Z panel. So they like brought these Gen Zers in to talk to all of us, like weird DC people. And it was fascinating because there was like, it wasn't um, like a kind of speech that a couple of these kids had like come up with. It was just their own experience was that they didn't have hope. And that's the question that I'm I'm most interested in. But that's not always tied to the reality of the situation. That's a perception which makes it very hard to address because you can actually give them a lot of statistics and, and say, well, okay, well, child po poverty has gone down like 40% in the last two decades. There are metrics that are pretty encouraging if we compare America today to 30 or 40 years ago. But so that's why I wonder if it's not so much about improving the metrics, mm -hmm. it's about trying to persuade relatively young people that maybe they should be a little bit more resilient. Maybe they shouldn't be so, I, I don't mean to, well, I don't wanna sound let, unempathetic. Let, let, me, let me push you on this question, Chadi. So like one of your first principles is that democracy is great, which is, I mean, it's a good principle. Yeah. Um, but I do wanna just like ask you about it. So like this situation is a situation, as you were saying, like that does seem kind of unique to democracy. So like when you think about the social conditions in the background, what, like how do you have democracy without hope? Like how? Like how did, so if it doesn't track the reality of an entire situation, how did you get this background social stru structure creating this, this circumstance? And wait, Shadi, let's give you a second to think about this because yeah, we actually sure, have yeah. a question from yeah, yeah. the crowd. Oh, great. Yeah, why don't you start and then. Is it on? Yeah. Uh, I don't usually do this. Maybe the crowd's small enough. I think I can do it, but I, uh, I'm probably the oldest person in the room. Uh, so. <laughs> 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 or whatever that's worth. Yeah, I, I won that one. Uh, 
there was a session earlier in the week with something if we're doing so well why is everybody so grumpy and that's almost like this and i thought it was it was a pretty good session and they you can do a pretty good job i mean not this is one from another place in but uh a gang member who's 14 in chicago uh doesn't live as well lives better than the queen of england did in 1970 based upon the stuff they have and so it can't be stuff it has to be between our ears hmm. uh, that the issue is and where they they got to the internet and that's what's new and different and the comment was you know oversimplified the internet industries i mean facebook they are profit driven businesses they make money oversimplified by clicks wide 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 margin what gets clicks is outrage so if often in isolation during covid if you are part of the i'm going to generate more clicks and what you get a constant stream is with relative youth and lack of perspective is you get a hose full down your throat of uh, outrage. Probably that doesn't leave you uh, in a good place. I've read and I've heard of the places, the big social media companies, they have said literally, with it, regulate me, please. Regulate me, please. I don't know exactly why this isn't going good. We don't have, we don't have, uh, control of this thing, regulate me, please. And now, reflecting Congress, we've got 535 mostly old lawyers. <laughs> I bet there aren't five who are halfway qualified to do the work of regulation. Maybe there, maybe there isn't one. I mean, so, so they're going to be in it. So how we got to sort out who and how to get that done. Uh, yeah. And finally, one, one thing on China. I mean, I. Okay. Yeah. They have such a problem with you know demographics is destiny. Mm -hmm. They got thirty five years, and not enough people. And since they've changed the laws, and now we're sending people, the birth rate has gone down noticeably again, further. It's less than one, I believe. Yeah. In China now, uh, per couple. So you know, now I'm going for the smile have, here. The only, no the only solution for. Uh, China is to do a leverage buyout of North Korea and <laughs> labor source. So yeah. I think these are I think those are actually really important points and this actually gets to where I wanted to push back on you, Shadi, about metrics. Yeah. You already stated some skepticism of metrics, and I want to be even more skeptical because there are metrics. There is, you know, when you go to uh, the Encarta online, does anyone do that anymore actually? Well, what's it called? Encarta. No, oh. Nobody does that anymore. <laughs> I, I just dated myself. Um, but there's a difference between going online or going to a textbook and seeing, you know, wow, global wealth has risen and poverty has fallen. And then your experience as a 14-year-old gang member in Chicago. Those metrics are not, you know, what is shaping your life. And I think in this moment, um, to your point about the internet, there's much more visibility across the nation and much more visibility into who is doing better than you are. We have an entire industry, the social media industry, based on comparison. You go online, you feel some kind of way about yourself, and then you look at someone who's way more beautiful than you, way more successful, is on a yacht in Majorca somewhere, and you think, actually, my life kind of sucks. And you spend all of your time doing that. And as you said, the pandemic, you know, when we were all locked in our houses, there was kind of nothing else to do. I mean, so on this, like, I do think that we're seeing a kind of falsification of a certain theory of society, which is a kind of outcome-based one, which is you say, okay, like let's just make it so that a lot of the material structures work well, and then we'll leave all of the like substantive questions about what life is for and like how how to be happy, like up to individuals, and they'll sort it out, and then it'll all work. Like I do think that that theory is kind of um, under strain, and to say it mildly, I think one really fascinating thing is as you were talking about social media, um, so. If you say like the real part of a country, like what you really need is like insurance companies and banks and the sort of like hard, hard kind of reality, adult realities. And then there's also like entertainment and other stuff that we kind of buy with the stuff that we do with the real part. I think that that view has been falsified, right? So like what happens is that we say like what, what we've seen is that it's our storytelling, our story making industries that have become incredibly central to this story. So as we have um, seen 
people are absolutely captivated by how we talk, how we think, how we debate. The kind of like scrum of social media is actually the thing that ends up like, I mean, I don't know how many of you, like we're in like the most beautiful place in the world. How many of you have been like looking at social media while you're here, right? Like presumably like all of us. And that's like not great. Like that's not a good sign. Like whatever's happening out there is definitely more important and more captivating than what's happening on our phones. But it has been able to grab us. And so the upshot of this, I think for me, is that the um, thing you need for a civilization, more than even making sure it's e economic system works, is that it's kind of like it's story making part works. Well, speaking of story making, I mean, this brings us to the question of religion. And that's the other major shift that's happened over the past couple of decades, which is rapid secularization here in the US. I mean, we were long the kind of lone holdout um, in, in the West, really, um, that America was still quite religious. But we were hovering around 70, 75% church, mosque, synagogue attendance since the 1930s. Just in the last couple of years, as some of you might know, it's gone under 50%. It's a quite a precipitous drop. And if you focus just on Gen Z, then the numbers are even are, are just very far reaching. It's, it's, it's so as time goes on, we're going to see, unless they get more religious as they get older, which sometimes does happen if you have children and a family, but if they're not having children and a family, then the same factors that led people to become more religious in previous generations will not apply to Gen Z. So this is, I think, a, a big part of it. And I did want to mention two other things that relate to secularization, which is the kind of cult of therapy as a replacement for religion. That um, So we had a podcast episode um, I think it's called um, Among the Unbelievers. So if you guys, you know, have the... Have, if you uh, want to go look at your phones while you're in the mountains, then you should yeah. go look it's at this podcast episode. So yeah. I, I just say Wisdom of Crowds is available on Spotify, Apple, all the major podcast platforms. Even here in Aspen. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you can also find us on wisdomofcrowds.live, and you can find all of this. So this episode in particular, our friend Rachel Rizzo, who we had on as a guest, she was saying that when she goes on dating apps, it's so rare to see anyone saying, well, oh, I go to church every Sunday. This is important to me. Or I'm a practicing Muslim. Hope you are too. Instead, a lot of people say, I'm looking for someone who's in therapy and is acknowledging that therapy is important. Like this becomes a substitute for religious identification. The key phrase is like, are you doing the work? Yeah, are you doing, doing the work? I'm doing exactly. the work on myself. And as someone who has been in therapy, I've started to have my own doubts that just the very act, I don't wanna, I don't wanna dissuade anyone from going to therapy, but if everything is being therapized, every time something bothers us, we need to kind of attach a kind of syndrome to it, or there's something it's only, there, there is a risk there, here. There's a question back here. Question. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would build on that, and I think that the therapy and you know, there are people who are seeking ritual and fellowship, and I think that they also find that on social media, and it's that connection. And they used to find that on Saturdays at synagogue and at Sundays at church, and now they're finding it when they're going on Instagram and they get liked or they can see somebody's real, or they go on TikTok. But I think that the you question with regards to American decline is the growth slowed down enough, and we haven't recognized the big, audacious progress that's occurred in Washington over the last few years with the Inflation Reduction Act and ARPA, and the fact that we were able to overcome as a society not as quickly as we would have hoped, but the triumph against a global pandemic that we can all now sit together in a room and not fear that in the next few days we're going to be coughing and have to isolate. So I don't think that there's a decline. I do think that there's a slowness in terms of the progress and not necessarily the recognition of what is happening. And there's perception in reality, and we can all agree that perception matters. Well, so can I, can I ask you about this? I mean, so you, you cite, you stated kind of two different points. How do they go together? So you've got, on the one hand, the um, decline of social connection and context for that that seem meaningful. And then on the other, the sense of like, 
actual kind of civil, like doing fascinating and amazing things at a civil, civilizational level. How do those two points go together for you? I think the first is a distraction to the latter. Okay. And so as we're just trying to get those short-term endorphins for the likes or those social connections, those big audacious moments of progress are lost in that static. Cool. You've got a question too. Just going to um, pile on to that. I think that's good. I think the question is one of a decline or progress, depending upon where you sit in your life. And I think the opening statistic about Republicans being proud, I think proud of what America has done, what America has been, what America is today. And I think people who are not proud are thinking about what America could be, what America should be, what America can be for the world. I, just, I think it's super interesting <clears throat> thinking of family members and people I know. Many people are extremely proud of what America has done and are so scared to see that change and have that taken from them. And other people I know in my family and others are so excited for what we can be. And it feels like the court, the legislatures are pulling back, certainly in some states, um, like two steps back. Hopefully it'll be three steps forward, but it's that push and pull. So I think that's a really interesting observation. You could answer the question either way, depending on where you said. But like in both cases, both of those groups seem to believe in America. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. some basic sense. Neither of them are actually antagonistic against it. That's super interesting. Yeah, one more up here. You know, when you say decline in progress, I know exactly what you mean. And if I asked you to go get a bucket of decline and bring it here, you couldn't do it because it's a word we make up. So the question is, so it doesn't exist in nature. There's stuff happening and we call it decline. So you alluded to the experience of the guy, the gang member, mm -hmm. and you talked about the importance of stories. Do we get that the stories we tell ourselves literally shape the experience of our lives? That is, that is such a great question. I feel this kind of moves us maybe to the second part of this, is decline inevitable? And as you were making this comment about, you know, America has actually done great things. We, we got out of COVID, for instance. One of the things that I have noticed and felt in some ways kind of sad about is COVID has ended. It seems that we've defeated COVID in some way, but at least in my experience in DC, it never really felt like there was a moment as a nation where we said, yes, we did this. Like We're no, moving no, forward. No celebration. There was no celebration. It just like COVID kind of like faded away and like eventually the states of emergency like kind of disappeared and we just moved past it and we never really reckoned with what happened. It just went away. And even when we have, you know, these great public policy decisions, these great moves forward, there's rarely, again, like uh, a sort of American sense of solidarity, a shared story that we tell ourselves that we did this great thing. Instead, it's like, okay, we're going to like hide this in the tax code because it's kind of expensive and like, we'll see the outcomes later on, but we're not going to talk about it too much. And is a way out of decline, or at least the feeling of decline, actually finding things that we can celebrate together and tell a positive story, an upward narrative together? And if so, what would that look like? And I do think that one of the problems in answering that question is that as a nation, you know, we believe in pluralism, we believe in democracy, this has been a very good thing for our nation. But for everyone who says like, oh, this step forward in LGBTQ rights is amazing for us. There are two people who will say, actually, that's a sign of decline. Actually, I think that's bad for us. And those stories coexist and they simply don't match up. And those are like the first principle clashes. Yes. Like, exactly. Like this is about what you actually think life is for. Yeah. Yeah. Decline is sort of like beauty in that way. It's in the eye of the beholder, I think. <laughs> but, um, but this, I want to push you on the first principles because you've alluded to this a couple yeah. of times. Yeah. The fundamental question here is how do we live well? How do we think about what a good life is? And I think that increasingly, especially younger Americans and with liberal arts programs declining in most universities across the nation, that we're moving away from this first principles approach. When you ask people um, what does it mean to live a good life, they'll oftentimes struggle. Or if you ask them why do you think democracy is good, that tends to lead to a lot of struggling. We just assume things are good without actually interrogating. You did just assume democracy was good right there. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I do, but I have my reasons, too. Yeah. We'll find out about this later. <laughs> but so how would, like, Sam, if I, yeah. like, what, 
Like if you were talking to people who are really struggling with these questions, how should they orient themselves on material versus spiritual versus emotional? So I think that we are, uh, we haven't yet hit on the one category which I think is actually essential to be able to think about this question well, which is suffering. So the issue of your baseline expectation for life is actually, I think, incredibly important. And um, one of the things that we talk about in like lon the loneliness studies is um, you can have solitude without loneliness, and you can have loneliness without solitude. And that's because it has something to do with what you're expecting. Like, what is it that you actually think you need to be able to flourish? And when I think about this question that we're considering here, which is, is America declining? One of the reasons why, one of the places where I find myself most out of step with almost everyone talking about this conversation yeah. is that I tend to think that the, per, the perennial human factors, there are some things about humans and how we live and how we live together that are fairly real and kind of can endure even in like the vast contrast like we were talking about like between authoritarianism and democracy or between the like um the communist settlement versus the meritocratic settlement like th those are real and can be incredibly disorienting but i also think there is a kind of background resilience that humans have so wh what like to take the kind of demographic you were talking about i'm really interested in how students think because the question of like you step into life this is back to the question of hope you step into life it ends up being very challenging and so then what? Like, what does that actually mean? How do you draw your conclusions about what reality is, what you should do then? What are these obstacles? Are, the, are these obstacles, or are they like um, the kind of thing that cuts your life short? How does that actually work? And so I think when I'm pondering this, I am actually really interested. I, so I tend to think we do actually have, um, when we're thinking about decline, is the question, here's an external state of affairs. Is it just going to happen? Or is there actual agency in this in, in any place? And I tend to think there is. Um, in contrast to our, the fourth member of this um, uh, circus, uh, Demir Maruzic, who like, really doesn't think that there's a m much agency at all like in human life, maybe generally, but definitely in politics. I, I really do. I, think, I tend to think that it is really possible that we could live in this moment and um, make choices in different paths. And one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that we could actually start to develop a set of human resources that would give us strength to be able to hit suffering in a different way than the kind of background that we've been experiencing. Yes, but this makes me wonder too about the question of happiness and the panel that you did with Arthur Brooks yeah. yesterday. Everyone in, I mean, the happiness industry is kind of everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I, I listened to a couple happiness podcasts, the Happiness Lab, for example, but I think that there might be this kind of counterintuitive effect that the more that we talk about happiness, we create an expectation where everyone feels that they should be more happy than they actually yeah. are. And then they're back to this business of comparing themselves to others. Because if you listen to the happiness lab, there are people who have found the light and they're sharing that. And that makes you, I feel yeah, this way exactly. too. You haven't found the light. Yeah, yeah, so I what's wrong with yeah. You? yeah what's you your problem, Shadi? It hasn't, Fun. exactly. It hasn't. It ha <laughs> Yeah, that, that is actually, I think, one of the negative uh, effects. I mean, so, so let me just say one thing on this. I mean, I actually am pretty, uh, in contrast to what I said, um, I didn't mention this like in public yesterday, but I will <laughs> mention it in public now. I actually am pretty critical of the happiness stuff. And the reason is, um, I think happiness is a second order category. I think it's an effect of having had deep insight into what humanity is and what human life is. And then happiness shows up. Like, and it can show up in a way that you don't, know how to control and you shouldn't know how to control and like then it can slip away and if you, if even even if it shows up by accident and then you try to grab it you're also going to lose it at that point like that that idea of like trying to engineer the outcome of happiness i don't think works yeah, but i do think you can get insight into how to live well definitely yeah, yeah. let's take yeah Maybe. let's let's do let's do john at the back actually sorry just so we just so we yeah, have just to make um, sure we yeah just yeah. We want to make sure everyone has a chance to jump yeah. in yeah just yeah I'll talk even less. Uh, uh, no. I never, I've got between kids and grandkids, I can cover 52 to three. So there's always college students around. And I love talking to me the optimism. It's, it's all great. When they get, when they've been to some place where they were told life was going to hell, uh, my perspective I have added to them is, I never told you life was supposed to be easy. Where did you get that? I know people who had great lives, died happy, 
they had some, they went, there was not a smooth ride. So the expectation, like life is supposed to easy is baloney. Nobody ever told, and life isn't supposed to be easy in a perfect world, I don't think. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I can, and I can ask them when they've told me everything, you know, they can, the bars are, you know, this is bad, that is bad, this is horrible, that's horrible. I said, talking about it and posting it doesn't count. That's nothing. In the last 30 days, what have you done to get your knee skin and your hands dirty? And they usually kind of don't have an answer to that. And uh, finally, I can say to them, well, it is lousy. What country do you want to switch? If you've got a better country, I'll move, I will both move there. What, where, where do you want to go? <laughs> and I haven't had an answer uh, to that one. Norway. And one of the all this stuff, all the projections we hear, they have an unstated, in, inherent assumption that's made is innovation doesn't exist. There won't be another innovation. There won't be another anything that will make things better. I mean, when somebody, thirty years from now, we're going to be twenty percent short on that. Well, okay. with what we that's, that's great. Thank I you. would guess yeah. we're going to be. Yeah. Do you want? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah. You said, Phil, and when you were talking about um, um, uh, Mr. Brooks yesterday and the, the happiness, so I'm a parent. Are we all three Gen Z? Where does Gen Z stop? 26? Um, um, 1996, like I think. Is okay, oh, so, so I get a 97er and okay. then two official Gen Zers. And, um, and I do think it's the difference between the me self, the I self. Mm -hmm. This is what I see mm -hmm. in my children. Anyway. Mm -hmm. This, and I think it's perpetuated by social media, and this looking outward, you know, instead of how can I help others? How can I serve others? Be of service to this world. And I think it also goes along with the lack of faith, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. And yeah. so I think, you know, this this just me, me, me sort of thing. And they're wonderful kids. Yeah. But um, I, I think that and with without the religion, yeah, kind of makes it. Yeah. And I, I, do you, do there's wanna, also yeah, just yeah, quick yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, Steven Pinker does a series of different factors. And no matter how you look at it, the world has gotten demonstrably better in the last hundred years from safety, quality of life, prosperity. Uh, I do see us in a period of decline. America's been ascendant over the last 250 years, but I do sense a, a decline. And I think part of that is so much of this discussion that I was fortunate enough to not be involved in when I was growing up, <clears throat> that the world is going to come to an end mm. at yeah. some point. Uh, pointing out all the flaws of the nation yeah. without talking about each time we became a more perfect union and the fallenness of human nature and what we had to do to overcome so much of that. And I really saw, and our boys were fortunate enough to go to schools that we chose for them and are considered excellent schools. But oftentimes what we were saying at the dinner table was being challenged at, at school. And part of that is education. But I, I think that they're, they are overcoming it. But I see it so much in that generation. And then we are the first to raise kids with social media. There's a quote from Montesquieu that says, it's so easy to be happy until you choose to be happier than others. Mm. That's oh, that's good. And, <laughs> and, and it does fall apart because of envy, uh, you know, one of the deadly sins. The, so quote, This uh, quote brought to you by the Philosophy and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I think that that's a lot of what we're dealing with. And I think uh, whether it's political parties or different generations coming and trying to point out what there is to be hopeful for, and at the end of this, we're lucky enough that our parents are still alive. I do think this idea of two people meet each other, fall in love, start a family, fixes a lot of things. It really focuses the mind. And you know, actually, to interrupt, that was really beautiful. We're saving that quote. We're, we're going to use <laughs> that yeah. for a future podcast. Yeah. Um, but just a note about religion, actually. I know, Shadi, you gave these great statistics about the decline in religiosity. What has been actually fascinating to me, I write about this um, at the Post too, is that people are not necessarily becoming irreligious totally. Um, they aren't ceasing to believe. They're just leaving organized religion. So they're going from, say, Catholic, um, not to like atheist, but to just a general Yoga. nun. Yes, well, yes. And so in that category of nun, it's actually often young people 
trying to put together their own sort of religion and experience of um, spirituality, whether it's yoga, whether it's, I did this interview a few years ago, whether it's becoming witches and practicing Wicca, that was a big thing. There was like a moment when a group of witches across America tried to curse Donald Trump and it didn't seem to work, but <laughs> side note. <laughs> but one of the things about these, yeah, there are people who like read, I wrote about the, um, the, pod, the very popular podcast and program, Harry Potter as a Sacred Text, where people were coming together <laughs> to read Harry Potter in, in the way that they would read the Bible and try and draw meaning from it. So people are looking for, for spirituality. They're, they're looking for religion in some way. But the options that they choose tend to be really individualistic. They're focused on making them feel better and making sure that they can manifest their own happiness. But yeah, but they don't usually involve like this sense of broader community, the sense of meeting with people who don't agree with you, the sense of you know, service to others and that being a responsibility of your religious well, let, faith. Let me, and me, so they don't seem to satisfy. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let, me, let me just jump in here and then and, we'll pull in John. So um, I think that there's actually just a kind of factual question here, which is what do humans need to be happy? And um, the question I have about what you were just describing is, so in many cases, these like new spiritual forms are the kind that have to do with you and your authentic self in some right. way, mm -hmm. but not with a realization about what's real externally. So it's not a kind of cosmic statement about everything. It's a statement about you and your capacity Religion, to express, what you feel. express these things. And yeah. this is, I mean, a movement that goes back at least to the early 19th century, probably earlier. I think that the question um, that like our generation and younger is facing is, is that adequate or is that sufficient? And I am very interested to watch the kind of foment around this, because there are times when you see people starting to say like incredibly strong things about reality, and they're kind of offensive in many cases and troubling. And then other times people like totally shy away from any statement that has to do with um, like the moral arc of the universe or whatever, right? And um, where that develops, I think, will be very significant for the kind of like the future of how hope works. Um, let's pull in John though. Yeah, I, I just had a question, and this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I guess I had a question for, for this panel about national identity and whether you feel that American passion is unique. And I think what I mean by that is that, you know, if, you, if we were to try to have this conversation in a number of Western European countries, including those in some respects with better outcomes in, in, in important areas for, for the average citizen, if you said, you know, is X country um, in decline, it wouldn't be a question mark at the end. They just go, yeah, sure, <laughs> we're in decline. <laughs> you know, where I think that there is more of a kind of, uh, you know, perhaps a, a sort of inherent pessimism. And I, what I see at least in America is that the, I think the average citizen has a much stronger sense of what should be American ascendancy, mm -hmm. whether it's in their personal success, whether it's in the, how their community is thriving or where their nation sits on the national stage. But also that definition of success appears to be incredibly partisan. So for success for one person might be very different nationally. Um, it might be tied to the free market. It might be tied to American dynamism. Whereas for another, it might be tied to a sense of sort of collective equitable outcomes. And so one, I guess I'm wondering, is American sort of definition of success something you think that is kind of unique here in terms of how we think about it and how we worry about it? And two, do you think that there is a path to get back in a deeply kind of partisan environment to get back to a shared definition of what American success would ultimately look like? Okay, so let's just take a, a final question here and then we'll begin to wrap up since we're a little bit over three. I just noticed yeah. that we have... <laughs> oh yeah, let's take, okay, yeah. Let's take that one too. <laughs> yeah. I just want to hear her. Oh yeah, sure. I'm just thinking about where my kids look. Um, they're 20 and 25, and, and they want to have purpose, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the sources of meaning. Um, it's not that they're following social media, it's that they're following global issues and are, ex are exposed in a way my generation certainly wasn't to all of the places mm -hmm. in which people don't have freedom, they don't have enough food, all of the ways in which we aren't protecting the climate, and then watching two parents who are policy researchers for a career, um, and seeing a kind of 
it used to be a joke in our household. What was it like growing up when people believed in science? <laughs> and um, and right. it got less funny uh, over time, um, even though they still they still ask. And so I, I I don't think for them it's about an accumulation of goods or me. And maybe that's being raised by two social sociologists, but it's about what can create justice in the world. And that's hard to confront because you can always look, and going back to Chris's earlier point, it depends on, on, on what you're looking at. It's in the eye of the beholder, but there's so many places to look and see it not working. Amen. Mark, do you want to? Sure, and I want to apologize. I arrived late, so I may be repeating you. something <laughs> said previously. But I want to pick up on this decline is like beauty in the eye of the beholder. I don't think that's quite precisely correct. I think there is a notion of decline and improvement, but the issue at hand is with regard to what values does it make sense to increase or decrease our investment? And there is almost no movement, almost no movement, that isn't latching on to something that is genuinely important in their lamentation for decline. And I actually think the most effective way to conduct this conversation is to think about what thing are you mourning for whose value I also share? And in what ways can we reclaim that value as part of our civil conversation? Right. So these are some great comments. I'll just, I'll just make a final note and then t uh, send it over to you guys for the final insights as, you know, try to give us some guidance and so forth. That'll be a... I wish I had my. Um, it says five, five minutes. minutes. It says okay. five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't see yeah. far away. Five minutes <laughs> for the definitive decision okay. of whether America's in decline. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so I, I think John raises a in really interesting question about is there something distinctive about America and Americans? And decline, the only way to think about decline is to, to have achieved greatness. Because if you've achieved greatness, you're always in fear that that greatness will dissipate and that you will come back down to earth. And that's why declinist narratives tend to be quite prominent in countries or nations that had amazing, like very impressive histories. I mean, the British Empire or um, the Muslim world, this sense that we used to be great and now we are no longer. There is a very interesting dynamic there where, for example, um, John, as you said, like I don't think that Danish people, I don't know, maybe, do Danish people feel like they're in decline? Maybe not, maybe. But one thing that's different is that America is an idea. Where Denmark, Sweden, and a lot of these European countries are at some basic level ethnically and geographically territorially based. They're not fundamentally about an idea. So if you base an entire country on an idea, that actually creates, creates a lot of angst because everyone is comparing their reality to the idea of America. And oftentimes the reality of America will, will appear to be lacking, which leads me to a kind of final provocation to both of you. The data does seem to show that it's young progressives in particular who are more unhappy, despairing, and depressed, where younger conservatives have issues, but it's not as pronounced. And this this, I think, is important because progress, the very idea of progress can create dissatisfaction. Because if the idea is that America is always progressing, there's always some new frontier to reach or to go towards or some new struggle, there's no way to just sit and have a fixed point. And I think that uh, I, I'd be curious, to what extent do you see this as partly an ideological problem that we see more on the left? And I should also note that, you know, if you read our cultural elites in the Washington Post or the New York Times, Brookings, you know, the Atlantic, whatever it might be, those are the people who do tend to have a more doomer, doomeristic narrative because they're very well educated and they want more from life. And life isn't giving them those things. So that, I'm not saying that we should be less progressive. But I do wonder if there's something about the progressive mindset that leads us on a potentially dangerous course. So I think that's, I think you're hitting on th like three separate issues that mm. I think are actually really key here. So one to this question of whether America um, is unique in its expectation of progress. 
I spent some time in the Netherlands a couple of years ago, and I was fascinated by their sort of contentment with decline. Everyone there seemed to be okay with saying, you know, like the Dutch East India Company was great. It roamed the high seas. Anyway, that was in the past. That was nice then. Now we're just trying to make it as a country and provide good health care to all of our people. And that was satisfying, actually, it seemed, for a lot of the populace. America is so young, though, that we have not actually really reached a moment where we could say, well, we did a lot of great things and we're content that maybe like we'll slowly start to do fewer things in the world. We're still young enough that we want to stay on top. And that that narrative of progress, we have to stay on top, mm. necessitates a lot of comparison with who's fallen, are we falling, can we compare ourselves to someone who might be doing better? And yeah, that, that doesn't tend to lead to a good emotional state. And then speaking of emotional states, I think we all, I, I at least have to apologize on behalf of my publication, <laughs> the Washington Post. I do think um, that, you know, bad news sells, um, horror stories get clicks. And we do actually hear feedback from our readers that, you know, the news is depressing. The news is making me feel like the world is worse than it is. And I, I think I'm going to have to stop reading so much because otherwise I will just become depressed and believe that America is falling apart. So this also has to do with the stories that we tell and what we choose to highlight. Do we highlight, hooray, like we, we did this great thing, we ended COVID, or do we highlight uh, somebody made this mistake and there are questions in the science and maybe it's going to come back, hide under your bed. The stories we tell ourselves also contribute to whether we believe that we're in decline or progress. And then, yeah, that's, I think that's finally to Tamar's point here, actually. The story is key. We could be, really, it doesn't actually matter in some sense whether America is technically in decline or technically on the upswing. It's how do we feel as citizens? How do we interact with each other? Are we improving in our relationships? Are we being of service to our countrymen? Like that will actually define where America goes. So I'll just um, conclude with a couple of uh, um, troubling thoughts from a philosopher, um, as usually <laughs> happens at our dinner parties. Uh, so the first one is, I'm actually not sure. I wonder if America is also a kind of second order good. So at a lot of a second order good. So, so it seems to me that like when I've gone, actually Shadi and I go to a lot of these kind of like, how do we save democracy kind of things. And in many cases, you say, okay, we know democracy is great, or we know America is great, and then this is the outcome we need. I actually wonder whether what we need to do is step back from that a little bit and just start thinking more about what it means to have a good human life. And if you do that, and you do that well, I think America will probably also turn out pretty well. Um, and so then just one, one last thought about, about this. One of the themes in this conversation that has really struck me, I, I got into a big fight with a writer at The Atlantic about this a couple weeks ago. Um, one does. As one does, yeah. <laughs> uh, about um, how much you should write a book just about policy and how much you should write it about humanity. And I was thinking a lot about this section in Kierkegaard, which I should write about for Wisdom of Crowds at some point, where he talks about despair and, and angst. And he has a um, nice dialectic where he talks about the finite and the infinite. And he says, you can go wrong both directions. So you can have infinity or a kind of infinity where it looks like the entire world is open to you and get paralyzed in this condition. Or you can have a plotting. We talked about this a little bit on the panel yesterday. A plotting sort of um, every uh, one damn task after another kind of you. And in both cases, you end up in despair. And um, I do think that whatever is happening now, it is actually a crisis of the finite and the infinite. Like, one of the reasons why I'm much more sympathetic to a lot of pro progressive stuff than, than you are sometimes, Shadi, is because I think it's actually a feeling of the infinite. It's saying, oh, look, like, we have had this, this prior status quo, and it's not okay. Like, here are a bunch of atrocities that have been related to racism or related to our economic system, and those are actually troubling, and we should be troubled by those, and we mm -hmm. should allow that impulse of frustration to mean something. That is a, a crisis of meaning in a real way, but I think potentially a productive one. The question is, how do you move from that intuition of something large that should unsettle you into a vi viable life? And this is where I end up being kind of hopeful. I actually think the kind of like foment that we've experienced recently is not an unproductive one. Like I think we're going, it's been a kind of painful one, and like we've all 
suffered from it in various ways. But I do think they're, they're, time is long, and the ability to have a mood and then have it move into another mood, I think, is definitely possible. Well, that's a good, somewhat optimistic note upon which to end. Um, thanks to both of you. Thanks to all of you for, for joining us for this live taping of Wisdom of Crowds. Again, if you enjoyed this conversation, I would encourage you to subscribe on your podcast feeds and also to read our essays and debates, um, including featuring the three of us at various different points. And we, you can we, pub that. we publish a Monday note um, every week and then usually a large essay or debate on Wednesdays. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and then the podcast on Fridays. Yeah, and you can find all of our stuff at wisdomofcrowds.live and feel free to sign up. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks for being here. Yeah.